You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with the reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Thank you, Lisa. Good morning. Welcome. Uh, My name is Matt Proctor. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, it's a joy uh, to worship the resurrected Christ with you this morning. If you don't have a Bible, I do encourage you to grab a Bible that's in a seat rack in front of you and open up to Hebrews 12. You can use a table of contents if you need help. Um, We like to teach through books of the Bible. So we were in earlier in Hebrews 12 last week. We will be in Hebrews 13 next week. Come back. Hebrews 12. Now there's an expression. It goes a little bit like this. Fortune favors the bold. It's a nice expression. It's not a very useful tip when you go hiking in mountains. Four years ago, my family was hiking in the mountains. Uh, we were in Rocky Mountain National Park, and we were, I have a picture, we were, gonna, we were gonna hike what is known as the Chasm Falls Trail. Note that the sign says, use caution. And Chasm Falls is really beautiful falls, but it, it takes just a series of kind of switchbacks to make your way to the top to get the, the best view of Chasm Falls. And so my children were kind of getting tired of this kind of back and forth thing, so they asked a very natural question, Dad, can we just go up? And I'm like, well, sure, why not? What could happen, right? And so we, we made our way up. Instead of taking the switchbacks, Mom, the smart one, took the switchbacks. But the boys went up the mountain. And when we got to the top, we had this beautiful picture. See, here. There, look at that. Chasm Falls. And then we needed to go down the mountain. And if they thought it was uh, 
boring to do switchbacks up the mountain, they also thought it wouldn't be fun doing switchbacks down the mountain. And so we went down the mountain. And uh, one of my kids was coming down the mountain, and he did one of those, oh, and seriously got to one of these, looking over about an 18-foot drop, right? Three inches this way and about three pounds more, and he would have gone, right? As a dad, like, all these images come into your brain, and we do one of these things where you take your child, and we all walk back together, and then we took the switchbacks the rest of the way (laughs) down the mountain. So just treading mountains requires care. And the passage that we're looking at in Hebrews 12 talks about two mountains, God's mountains. So if you have to tread carefully climbing mountains at Rocky Mountain National Park, when you tread God's mountains, there's an even higher level of care and caution that should be expected. And so I just have kind of three points today. We're going to talk about the untouchable mountain. We're going to talk about the festive mountain. And then we're going to talk about our proper response. So that's all we're going to do. The untouchable mountain, the festive mountain, and our proper response. So here we are in the festive mountain. Uh, the untouchable mountain. Look with me in this text. Because it actually starts with a negative. It says, you have not come to a mountain. Now the you, if you've been with us for a number of weeks, the you are the Christian believers in the first century who worship God. And he's saying, you haven't come to this mountain. But what mountain is being described? Just listen to some of the description. It says, there's a mountain that, you have not come to the mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words, that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them. So the original listeners, primarily, most of them are Jewish Christians, and they would, they would know that what has just been described is called Mount Sinai. Uh, so you've seen the old Charlton Heston movie, uh, The Ten Commandments, that's Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is where God showed up to the people of Israel. It's where God's going to give them the Ten Commandments. It's, it's where God is going to instruct Moses under the old covenant laws. But this is describing Exodus chapter 19 and Exodus chapter 20 when God first approached. So God is coming down to earth at this particular mountain. And when he comes, there's darkness and gloom. There's this burning fire. There's There's this weightiness in this moment. And everyone is terrified. What is going on? Well, here's what's going on at the Mount Sinai. It is a visual and visceral visceral display of God's holiness and the exclusion of sinners. When they come to Mount Sinai, there is this visual and visceral experience of God that says God is holy. He is not like you. He is not like me. And there needs to be an exclusion, a, a separation between God and humanity. They couldn't even touch the mountain where God was approaching. If you read, if we keep reading here in verse 20, it says they could not, they could not bear what was being commanded. It says even if an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. And then it says the sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. I mean, Moses is 
potentially the greatest Old Testament saint. He's the greatest Old Testament leader. He is the one who led the people of God. He's the one who spoke, you know, mano a mano to Pharaoh. Moses is terrified at the approach of the holy God at the mountain. What happens at Mount Sinai? This is where the conditions of salvation are set. That's what happens at Mount Sinai. God comes to his people and says, be holy as I am holy. You want to be saved? You want to be in a right relationship with God? Keep all the commandments. Those are the conditions of salvation. And the people could not bear what was commanded. They felt the weight of what God is asking humanity to do. And they all trembled. It's a visual and visceral display of God's holiness and the sinner's exclusion. Do you know what it feels like to be left out? Mensa. It's an organization for the world's geniuses. I've been left out. (laughs) Every four years, the Olympics takes the greatest athletes around the world. I've not been invited to watch. (laughs) What God is describing, though, is... Like God, what they're seeing, what they're experiencing is the greatness of God, the holiness of God. This, this sort of beauty that both attracts, you want to be close to that glorious beauty, and yes, yet the weight of the beauty and the glory is so terrifying, they know that they have no right to be there. In the Old Testament, what had to be set up so that they could stay there is they set up a whole system of sacrifices. You're right, people of God. You, you can't be in relationship with him. We have to set up an entire system of sacrifices and priests so that the blood can be spilled, so that the unholy Israelites can be in a relationship with the holy God. And they felt the weight. You know, you're going to, when we come to this text and you, you even meditate on Mount Sinai, or even as you read through all of the Old Testament, it is to make you tremble. It is to make you fear To to feel your lack, to to recognize your sin. If you go to the doctor and the doctor says you are terribly sick and you're going to die, you don't hop, you know, you don't hop or skip out the door. You you let the you let it sink in. This is a mountain of dread. And everybody starts at this mountain. The weight of our sin, the separation from God, that we don't deserve to be connected to him. And yet remember how the passage began. That's not the mountain you are at. How do I get off that mountain? (laughs) How do I tread? (laughs) How do I hike to a different mountain? He describes a second mountain. It's not Mount Sinai. He takes you to Mount Zion. And so, but you, right, for original audience, but you, first century Christian, 
but you who have trusted in the Messiah, you who, some of them would have maybe even seen Jesus crucified. You, first century Christian, that hear of the resurrected Christ, you who would put your faith in him, where are you? He says, you're not at Mount Sinai. He says, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So we have Sinai, which is the untouchable mountain. And then we have Mount Zion, which is the festive mountain. What, did you see what's being described? It's the most glorious gathering imaginable. Did you see the guest list? Who's there? The living God is there. This is God's city, the heavenly city. Who's there? The angelic host are gathered there. Who's there? All of the spirits, all the beings who have been made righteous by God, they're there. Who's there? Jesus, the mediator. He's there. But shock of all shocks, verse 22, you're there. You have come to Mount Zina. You are on the guest list. You have been brought in. At Mount Sinai, the conditions of salvation were set. At Zion, you find out the conditions of salvation have been met. How were they met? Did you hear the the blood? The mediator. Some of us gathered this past Friday. And we remembered that on a Friday, 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ killed on a cross. And before he was killed, he was beaten. Before he was killed, beaten, he was put a crown, there were a crown of thorns on his head. Before then, he was put through this false kangaroo court, convicted of a crime. But it was all planned and orchestrated by the God who wanted to have his people tread from Sinai to Zion. But the blood had to be shed. And then, it, did you catch what it says about the blood of Jesus? It says, The blood of Jesus speaks a better word than Abel's. So the first murder in the Bible was was when Cain killed his brother Abel. The first murder of one of God's sons was Abel's blood. And Abel's blood cried out for judgment. That's what Abel's blood, it cried out for vengeance. My brother has killed me unjustly. But here's the contrast. Jesus' blood doesn't cry out for judgment. Jesus' blood calls out clemency. Jesus' blood calls out peace. Jesus' blood preaches forgiveness. This is actually one of the major differences between Christianity and every other religion. Every religion preaches good advice. Don't smoke, drink, or chew, or go with girls who do. It preaches uh, saying prayers to an Allah or performing certain um, sacrifices or giving or, or being just a good Iowan. 
Every religion preaches good advice. The unique thing about Christianity is we preach news. News. Good news. Accomplished news. Finished news. It's not what you do, it's what Christ has done. The transformation that happens to a Christian is not done by them. It's done by God. His blood covers you. The the blood of peace and clemency is offered to you and you take it and you marvel at it. This is the most glorious gathering imaginable and you can be there. And if you trusted in Christ, you are there. Last Saturday, there was a pretty neat gathering of people. It was actually over at um, uh, the former First Assembly of God Church. I can't remember what it's called now, but it was a neat event. The, the comedian Michael Jr. was there, and he was performing a comedy act, and there was some neat Christian philanthropists there and amazing leaders in the city there, and, and the proctors were there because someone else bought our ticket. It was great. That's what it means to be in a relation to come to Mount Zion is someone else has to buy your ticket. None of us deserve to be with the angels or the living God, Jesus Christ the mediator. And that Jesus Christ buys our ticket by his blood. You know what I could say to the gentleman who offered me the ticket? Yes. Thank you. (laughs) That's really what transforms a person from someone who's not with God to is with God. It's to to say yes and then to say thank you. There's an untouchable mountain. There's this festive mountain. Who would say no to such a mountain? And yet people do. You know, one of my professors that I had about 10, 12 years ago was a man named Craig Blomberg. And he, he sets up our next, our final section with this little question. Craig Blomberg writes, Who on earth would want to refuse so incredible an offer? And yet people do. And then they must be alerted to what else an omnipotent God has promised. The disillusion of the cosmos as we know it. Followed by new heavens and new earth for the redeemed. And the lake of hell, the lake of fire, which is hell for everyone else. There is a response required, and we see it here in this last section. Verse 25 says, see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. So remember the good news goes out. God speaks. It is announced. It comes out. Don't refuse to listen. Don't, Don't cover your ears. Don't harden your heart. He says, if they, this is referring back to those Israelites who are at Mount Sinai, Sinai, it says, if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, right? there was was punishment out in Mount Sinai when they worshiped the idol. There's going to be punishment a few years later when they refused to enter the promised land that God had offered them by his grace and by his power. He said, they didn't escape punishment when they were just hearing it down here at the earth, but someone else is speaking now. It says, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? Mount Zion is preaching. Mount Zion is preaching the news that there is life through the blood. Then it goes back and it talks about Sinai again. Verse 26 says, at that time, 
His voice shook the earth. When they're at Sinai, there was earthquake. There were there was you know tremors. But those are little tremors to what's coming in the future. It says, but now God has promised once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. There's a day in the future when the entire cosmos, the world as we know it, even visible and invisible, are going to get shooken by God and, and changed and transformed. Verse 27 says, the words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken. That is, every created thing. What can God touch? Every created thing, because he put every created thing together. He's like the the seven-year-old who puts together this gigantic Lego set, piece by piece by piece. That little five-year-old, not his brother or his sister, has all authority then to take those things apart. But God has that authority, and he will do that. That is the plan. He's going to shake all created things so that what cannot be shaken may remain. And what can remain? Verse 28 and 29. His kingdom. That will not be shaken. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be, if you have a Bible, what's that word? Let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. You catch what the proper response is there? It's this holy gratitude. Holy gratitude. Here's the thing. You can't pay back God and you shouldn't try. That that salvation is a free gift. And our response is this overwhelming thankfulness. Every parent hopes when they buy that most expensive gift on Christmas Day, they hope that when they open the gift, they open the gift and then run and hug the parent, right? That's what the parent wants. God wants us to say thank you. He also doesn't want us to receive all his gifts and, and then like pull out our wallet and say, I know I can't pay you back, but I got, well, all I got is receipts. <laughs> right? he, doesn't, doesn't, he doesn't want us to pay back. He wants this holy gratitude. One of the more sobering passages in the Bible is in Romans chapter 1. And as I was thinking about our passage, you know, you often think, like, what's the worst sin in the world? The worst sin in the world is, like, pride. But I was just really struck by what Romans 1, verse 21 says when it's talking about just the fallenness, the sinfulness of humanity. Romans 1, 21 says this, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. Do you see what's in the heart of a sinner? Ingratitude. The root of most of our sin is ingratitude, right? We get discontent and we want and we take. But if you're, if you're full of gratitude, what comes out? There's joy, there's service. What God wants at the heart of his people is gratitude. I want you to imagine a woman on a highway in Boston, and she's in the ditch picking up trash because she's working off some community service. She's got about 100 hours left. 
She's picking up trash. And all of a sudden, she looks back, and a, por- a red Porsche 911 stops, and this guy gets out, and he walks up to her, and he says, what's your name? Julia. Okay. And then for the next hour, he just, he just picks up the trash with her. And then he gets back in his Porsche, and he drives away. When she reports next week to work the community, hours, community service hours, she gets there and she finds out some random stranger has worked all her hours for her. They're all gone. So she goes to work and she gets to work and there's this big gift there. and She's like, what's this? And some strange guy, he brought in this, this gift for you. What's his name? He didn't say. She goes to the, 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 the money gram place where she's been taking out you know, early advancements on her paychecks and she wants to make all things right. And she finds out all of those debts have been paid off. They're gone. She wanders back to her apartment. There's the stranger outside the door. He says, Julia, I love you. And he gets down on his knee and he pulls out a ring and says, will you marry me? He's like, I don't even know your name. Okay. <laughs> He's like, I want you to go buy a dress. Get a dress. I want to get married tomorrow at the city hall. And she's like, okay, that's great. And he leaves and she's like, oh my goodness. He said, buy a dress. I don't have any money. And so she goes down to the dress thing. Maybe she can get some side of loan. And she said, hey, I, I need to get a dress. I don't have money. What? He goes, oh, oh, some strange guy just stopped in. He dropped $15,000. He said, you can have any dress you want. Finally, the next day at the city hall, there's the guy right there. She's wearing this beautiful dress that he bought with no debts to her name, no hours left to work. And when that justice of the peace says, will you take this man? Do you think she said yes? We are far worse off than the woman picking up trash along the ditch in Boston, Massachusetts. We have debts to God that we cannot pay. We're wearing rags far uglier than she was wearing that. What Jesus does is he buys us back 100% by his blood. And he makes us his people. He makes us his bride. And that might seem a little strange to you. He might still feel like a stranger to you today. But why would you not say yes? Thank you. She'll have a lifetime to get to know the guy. He seems pretty swell. <laughs> the heart of understanding what has happened to go from Mount Sinai to Mount Sinai, the heart of it is gratitude. Overwhelming gratitude, full of joy. You get to be there. A writer by the name of Dan DeHaan writes this, the highest motive in the world and in heaven for obedience is love resulting from gratitude. A proper assessment leads to a proper response. A proper, if you assess who Christ is and what he's accomplished on the cross and then the triumphant resurrection that says, I won, I defeated death, I've purchased heaven, trust me. A proper assessment leads to proper response. 
That's why 18 years ago when my dentist told me, you need to floss all the teeth you want to keep. I'd like all of them. I think I'll floss. Jesus Christ laid down his life to save sinners. And those who believe in his name have everlasting life. But those who do not believe, they will be shaken with every other created thing, separated from God forever. This is the offer. This is what we celebrate when we say Jesus Christ lived, died, and he rose again, and he's coming back for his people. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we come before you once again on a resurrection Sunday to say he is risen. He's risen indeed. He's risen proving that he's defeated death. He's purchased sinners. His blood was sufficient. The Father was pleased. And the people now have access to Zion. And so, Lord, I love that the rest of the service, we're going to get to remember Christ's sacrifice through the taking of the Lord's Supper. We're going to be able to join the joyful assembly of the angels praising the God who arrested death. There's no God like you. You are the one true God, and we worship you in the name of Jesus. Amen.